Now we come to uh, the last uh, of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, the last of uh, the last letter. Uh, this is the letter to the church at Laodicea, and um, this is uh, this is probably the church that uh, most people are. Are, are most familiar with, um, so we we may not go into uh, uh, may not go into as much detail as we have with the other churches, but uh, uh, we're still going to try to endeavor to understand what uh, what's being said. Um, but this church here, uh, Laodicea, it, it gets preached about a lot uh, from one point of view or or another. So before we even go into the text, before we even start looking at it. Um, let's endeavor to, to prepare ourselves to read out of the text what's there and not to import our own preconceived notions, things we've heard, things we've uh, uh, seen before. Uh, we all have them, so it's not like I'm saying, you know, my way is better than your way or anything like that. We all have preconceived notions. We all have traditions, and we all have to... Um, have to uh, strive to lay them aside when we come to the text of Scripture so we can let the text speak to us rather than us uh, importing our own thoughts into the text, our own belief systems into the text. Um, And so because this letter is, you know, uh, the most familiar to us, I'm probably not going to give you a um, a huge long background about every aspect of the pressures in the city. If you've joined us through the through the other seven churches, you pretty much know what's going on in the Roman province of Asia. Um, you're going to have the same three things here. You have every other city that we looked at, trade guilds, and the overarching pagan culture that was part of the social civil life, um, the worship the gods. You're going to also have the imperial cult, you know, which was... Uh, enforce the worship of the Caesars in Rome by the political state, and uh, sometimes they did it forcefully. And then again, you know, you're also going to have a prominent Jewish population in, in every city, and that holds true as well in Laodicea. They were uh, very wealthy, very wealthy Jewish uh, uh, presence there in in Laodicea. <clears throat> and so, you know, you, you, you see the same things. It's going to be the same deals. I'm not going to belabor all those points about the different gods. It was pretty much the same same deal as the other churches. Um, there are a few things you ought to know about Laodicea before we dive into the text. But um, once again, since this letter is, is by far the most familiar to us, it's preached on a lot, uh, you probably have heard these things as well, so I'm probably not going to give you a whole lot of new information that you haven't heard before. Um, it's pretty straightforward. A lot of uh, <clears throat> a lot of the things that you heard are true about Laodicea. Um, it was by far the wealthiest city in the in the region. It was in the located in the Lycus Valley. Um, it intersected two different trade routes through the region: uh, one going north and south, one going east and west, right through the city. Um, and so there was an abundance of, uh, uh, of, uh, traffic as it come through with, uh, uh, buying and selling and, and all those kind of things. But Laodicea was well known for a few things, uh, in the region and in the, in the empire as well. Uh, and these things that it was well known for are going to be important for us to understand as we look at, uh, uh what Jesus, uh, you know, says to the church. Uh, first thing we've already mentioned, it was the city's wealth. There were uh, they were known to be wealthy. There were there were industries that were flourishing in the cities, and we're, we're going to talk a few, about a few of those as we go. Um, but Laodicea grew to the point that it was um, 
it was a regional banking center. I'll put it that way. It was uh, a center for, for commerce and banking. It, it had grown to the point that it was so wealthy that <clears throat> there were uh, currency exchanges and, and, and deposits. And I mean, it was a center for banking in the modern world. Around 51 BC, before Christ, the, uh, the Roman orator uh, Cicero. Um, wrote about how he brought what basically would be today considered bonds for exchange in, in Laodicea to be cashed. Uh, so the, the city was big time rich. Banking industry was flourishing in, in, in Laodicea. Uh, they were so rich, uh, just to give you another example, uh, in 60 AD, that's after, you know, uh, the 30, 30 years after Christ, um, in 60 A.D., there was another one of those famous Asian earthquakes that we've already talked about in the other cities, uh, and it it uh, it messed up the city. It destroyed uh, a, a lot of uh, Laodicea and, and damaged a lot. And uh, the empire, Roman Empire, was ready to provide relief funds for Laodicea, just like it had done for other cities, Philadelphia and and uh, and Sardis. Uh, but the city declined to accept those and and those funds and wealthy members of the city itself gave money to rebuild and beautify the city. They had they had lots of money. There's a lot of people that uh, when we talk about the date of Revelation's writing, and, and I'm going to talk a little more about that before we go into uh, into uh, probably chapter six. And we talked a little bit at the beginning that one of the reasons they say that. Uh, uh, the date could not be a pre-70 date, that it could not have been written before AD 70 because there was an earthquake in AD 60 that um, messed up Laodicea uh, and uh, it, it would have been hard for in, no, in 10 years for the church to grow wealthy again or for the city to grow wealthy. But the reality is that the city was wealthy before and after. Uh, they they spent their own money to fix the city, and so they were they were known for their wealth in the city. Second thing that they were known for, um, one of the industries in Laodicea was famous for this. Uh, it was a glossy black wool that they uh, they were they engineered it kind of through through cross breeding and and uh, uh, design designer breeding of sheep. Uh, uh, it was a commodity. This wool was a commodity that was exported throughout the Roman world. The the garments that had this wool, they were they were sought after. They were a highly uh, highly prized item. They were the uh, I don't know what today's fashion is. They were the Gucci. They were the uh, Armani. They were they were the they were the thing that rich people were were after, and they were exported all over the all over the world, <clears throat> all over the Roman world. And third, Laodicea was also known for uh, a famous medical school that was associated. It was actually associated with a temple that was outside the city, but uh, it, uh, it it came it became um, synonymous, part and parcel, with the city itself. Um, the names of uh, uh, of leading physicians are given in inscriptions that we have that on coins that were minted during the time of Augustus. Um, the school itself, this it, it, I, I say medical school, and and you're thinking, you know, you need to place it in the ancient world. You know, it's by today's standards, it would be nothing even close to a medical school. But uh, for in, in those days, it was a school of medicine, school of healing. Um, it followed the teachings of a man uh, named uh, Herophilus, who uh, who lived 
330 BC, maybe to 250 BC, right in there somewhere. And his his hypothesis, his uh, theorem was that uh, compound diseases uh, needed compound mixtures of medicines to cure it. And so, um, you know, they, they were they were mixing different ingredients to make these medicines and you know they were coming up with healing potions and, and all kind of things um, there's a physician from Pergamum his name name is a, a gallon he wrote uh, he wrote about an ointment that is made in Laodicea for the strengthening of the ears and then both gallon and Aristotle speak of what's called Phrygian powder uh, which was made there in uh, in Laodicea, and this Phrygian powder was an ointment for the eyes. It was an eye salve that's going to be uh, very important in the letter, and so this was well known. It was written about <clears throat> in the ancient world that was made there in Laodicea and uh, uh, exported to the Greek and the Roman world. So let's uh, let's look at uh, the text in verse fourteen. It says, "And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation." Uh, once again, I know you know you know you're probably tired of hearing it, but we have the same structure in this letter that we've seen in every other letter: the address to the church, uh, the introduction of who Christ is. Uh, Jesus uses three titles of himself here, uh, but some people take uh, the first, the Amen. He is the Amen, and the faithful and true witness are explanatory of what it means to be the Amen. So there's different interpretations about this, but <clears throat> he calls himself those three things for sure. He's the amen, the faithful, true witness. He's the beginning or the ruler of God's creation. Um, what does it mean to call yourself the amen? What does it mean when Christ says, I am the amen? Usually the word amen is used to say, you know, it just means let it be or, or you know, something that's said in agreement uh, with uh, with someone. In the New Testament, Jesus uses it um Usually before he says something really weighty that he wants people to take notice of, he'll say, amen, amen, or, uh, you know, sometimes in our English translations it's translated truly, truly, or verily, verily. Um, but here the word is being used as a title. It's being used as a, a name, a title of, of, uh, of Christ. It's been noticed by many people that Yahweh uses the term of himself. He calls himself the God of Amen in Isaiah 65, 16. He says, I am the God of Amen. And if if you go in your English Bible and look that up, you probably won't find it translated that way. Uh, but uh, Elohe Amen is literally the God of Amen in Hebrew, but most English translations are going to render it the God of truth, which you know, that's a good translation because amen does mean truly or, you know, let it be so or um, something like that. And so in Isaiah 65, 16, where he says, I'm the God of amen, um, God's saying that the reason that that you he's talking to his people, that you will bless and swear by the name of of the God of amen is because uh, then I'm quoting here. It says the former troubles are forgotten and hidden and are hidden from my eyes. And the very next verse, Isaiah 65, 17 says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And that's going to play heavily toward the end of Revelation. You probably have can recognize it already. That's where uh, John is quoting from <clears throat> at the end of Revelation. And so Jesus is uh, is uh, 
saying that he is the God of amen. He is the God who brings forth the new heavens and the new earth. He's the God of eternity. He is the God with the authority uh, over all creation, over all the universe. So when Jesus says he's the amen here, he's explaining uh, He's explaining what that means by saying he is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is, he, he's called the faithful witness in chapter 1. And we know that Jesus is a faithful witness because uh, we, we talked about this in chapter one, that he accomplished the father's will, suffered unto death you know, for the father's will, uh, uh, gave himself on a cross according to the father's plan. And uh, again, in chapter two, we see the same language when we talked about the Pergamum. There was a man there in Pergamum named Antipas, and he's also called Christ's faithful witness. So in that chapter, we saw that Antipas was a faithful witness, and he was faithful unto death because he was martyred for the testimony of Christ. So uh, what you see here is the faithful witness is going to, this is going to play a little bit in the letter as we, we read further and talk about the conqueror. Um, the faithful witness is the one who who uh, is faithful unto death. He is the one who holds uh, the testimony, holds the truth of God's word, God's will, uh, even in the face of of uh, persecution and trial. Christ became obedient unto death, and it's for that reason that he is the faithful witness, and he is the one who uh, who is uh, has been given authority over all creation as both God and man, and so. He's called, amen, the faithful witness. He's also called the beginning of God's creation. Some translations may say the ruler uh, of God's creation. That's because the word uh, beginning, RK, it also means ruler. And so you kind of can take it either way. Jesus is saying he is the creator. Uh, He is the ruler over all creation. Uh, When you put it all together, Jesus is here presenting his uh, he's presenting his ultimate authority over all creations. His witness is the true witness. He is the true authority. Uh, just like John wrote in the beginning of his gospel, all things were created by him, and without him there was nothing created. Uh, he has the authority to bring this message to the church at Laodicea. And we're going to see that he's going to give them a message that's um, it's a stern warning about the way they live. And it's also a message that that uh, that you and I must heed to. The reason there's a good reason why you probably are more familiar with the the letter to the Laodiceans than any other, and that's because so many people down, uh, especially through the last two centuries, have uh, have uh, connected uh, the modern church. What's you know a lot of people call the modern downgrade of the church, uh, the modern church with the church at Laodicea, because so many of the uh, of the traits that we see in the Laodiceans here, uh, we can uh, we can match with traits that we see in the modern, especially American, uh, church today. Um, and so there, there's really a good reason why you probably are more familiar with this. So let's uh, look at verse 15 and 16 together. And these are verses I'm sure you have heard many a time. It says, I know your works. It always starts this way. Christ knows the works of the church. He's walking among the lampstands. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that, it means, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, or neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spew you. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Um this verse here has probably been preached on more than any other in this section. I know that you've heard it before. <clears throat> Most of the time, when people talk about this verse, it is um, 
it's usually related to a person's zeal or their devotion to Christ. So, you know, hot means that you're on fire for God, and uh, and cold means that you know you you don't love God at all. You're you're uh, against against Christ. Uh, and, and so in this interpreta- interpretation, being lukewarm means you're just kind of eh, a little indifferent, unconcerned, you know, you aren't necessarily opposed to Christ, but you aren't exactly living for him either. Um, I have always, even as a non-believer reading this text, I've always had problems with this interpretation uh, for, for quite a few different reasons. But the main one, the main one is, I don't understand why Jesus would rather me be against him than be than be lukewarm. Uh, I mean, there's one there's one case to be made to say you know at least if you know that you're against him, uh, you understand that you're lost, and that would be a better you know that'd be a better. But that I mean, and I guess in certain circumstances that's true. You know, it, it's better. I, I have often found it true in my own. Uh, life that it's easier to uh, it's either easier to uh, uh, witness to a, a, a rabid atheist than it is to a religious person because they think they've already got it going on. But um, that interpretation, this interpretation about uh, being on fire for God or being just cold, and being lukewarm, being your spiritual your spiritual zeal or your spiritual fervor, it. It just doesn't fit into the text. It doesn't fit into the structure of what John is writing. It doesn't fit into the context. Uh, John is speaking here to the church at Laodicea. These are people who are they are part of the bride of Christ. And we're going to see. Uh, I do understand the fact that there are false converts. There are wheat among, there are tares among the wheat. You know, I do understand that. But, I mean, are you really expecting me to believe that Jesus would rather have the people in his own church in this city opposed to him? Uh, I I have a hard time with that. Why would Christ rather anyone be against him at all? I mean, even if it's, you know, even if it's being used just to show how bad being lukewarm is, you know, I understand how, how awful it is to be uh, wishy-washy and, and lukewarm about it, but he he says he'd rather you be cold. I mean, he'd rather you be he he'd rather you be uh, anti. He'd rather you be against him. He'd rather you just throw the whole thing in the trash than than to be just a little indifferent, a little lukewarm. Um, well, well, the problem with that, the problem with that, and if you hold to that interpretation, you know, more power to you. What, but that interpretation doesn't take into account. Uh, something that we've seen in every single letter that we've looked at so far. In every letter, Jesus uses language that the particular church that he's writing to would have recognized and was pertinent to the particular history, the historical situation in that church. Uh, And the same is going to apply here. The idea of being lukewarm would have been understood completely by the the Laodiceans, not as, hey, your spiritual... uh, on fireness for God is that a word on fireness? Uh, anyway, um, the city of Laodicea it, it, it was it's been described by many people as a fortress, and it would have been a perfect strategic defensive city for the region, except it had one huge weakness. 
one huge weakness and the the city had plenty of water so com there are commentators who say there was a shortage of water but th there's just no evidence for that but the water that was brought into the city uh, there was no uh, there was no natural supply of water i mean they there was water brought into the city for drinking water they had baths there you know there was water that was you know in fountains so they had an abundance of water but it was piped in through a system of stone pipes about 3 feet in diameter uh, the city didn't have any water supply from a natural source. It, it had to be pumped in from springs uh, uh, near Denizli. It was, it was another city about six miles south of Laodicea. So this was this was a well-known weakness for the city because you know if you're an incoming army, uh, you know all you really had to do was cut cut the pipeline. You know, cut the water supply off to the city and just wait. The city would be left without water. Um, and so water was uh, was a uh, it was a key commodity there in in the city. Remember, this is before refrigeration and all that stuff. You leave you leave water sitting up on the shelf. It goes stagnant. It gets bacteria, all kind of things in it. So there had to be a supply of water. But Laodicea had two sister cities that were close to it. Um, six miles north of the city was the city of Hierapolis, and to the south of the city, uh, well, southeast of the city, was the city of Colossae, and that was the city that Paul wrote to the letter to the Colossians. Now, these two cities did have a natural supply of water, and they were pretty famous for their supplies of water. Hierapolis was famous for hot springs. They, um, they, they were said to be mineral baths, hot mineral baths that would be healing uh, for this ailment or that ailment. And the hot springs flowed out of the city across the high plain, and then they ran off a cliff which uh, which actually faced Laodicea. So some commentators, you know, even imagine that this runoff was visible from the city of Laodicea. And, and as you can imagine, by the time the water reached the valley floor, the Lycus Valley, um, it wasn't wasn't hot anymore. It was well, you guessed it. It was lukewarm. And 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 Colossae, the other city, was it was wedged into a valley under the shadow of a mountain range, and there were. There were cold streams that flowed down the mountain into the city, and and so so that was uh, you know uh, it was cold water that was brought into the city, and it was you know everything cold water it would would have been in the ancient world. It would have been refreshing. It would have been you know all those things. It would have been renowned for all those things. You know especially since they didn't have refrigeration. Uh, so on one side of Laodicea, you had a city whose hot springs of water are renowned for its healing properties. And on the other side of the city, you had a city whose water was known for its refreshing, cold drinking water. So the point that Christ makes here is not that he would rather the Laodiceans not love him at all than to only love him a little, only be lukewarm. The point is that their water, which was piped in from six miles away by the time it got to Laodicea, was lukewarm. It was useless. It was good for nothing. That's what he's saying. He said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Um, the hot water from Heropolis was used for healing. The cold water from Colossae was refreshing. The water at Laodicea, which was pumped through a six-mile pipeline, by the time it got to the city, it was neither hot nor cold. The point is that the church wasn't useful in the city for the healing of the people. It wasn't useful for the refreshing witness of the gospel. Now, we can make all kind of guesses as to, you know, subjectively what it means to be, uh, 
you know, hot or cold in the city, the healing and refreshing and those things. But the point that's being made here is that the church is indifferent and therefore it's good for nothing. He was, he's not saying, I'd rather you either be on fire for me or hate me. What he's saying is, I'd rather you be hot uh, for the healing of people. Or I'd rather you be cold for the refreshing of people. But you're not doing anything because you're stuck in the middle. You're lukewarm. At Heropolis, those were healing baths, hot springs. At Colossae, there were cold, refreshing waters, mountain streams. Uh, here at Laodicea, there's no water supply at all. So it had to be piped in uh, from six miles away. And by the time it got there, it was just lukewarm. It wasn't good for healing. It wasn't good for refreshing. It wasn't really good for anything. It was useless and so what he's saying to the church is because you are lukewarm because you are you know twisting in the wind because you're swaying back and forth and you're you're really not holding to the witness of christ you're indifferent you're useless and he's going to explain to us exactly what he means in the next verse but we need to make sure we see here that it's not this is not a measure of their spiritual fervency i mean i guess it could be but the point that he's making is it's a measure of their witness it's a measure of their witness to christ in the midst of the world their witness is non-existent they're not useful for healing or refreshing they're 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 nauseating because of this, Christ says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. The picture is, you. I mean, this is a picture of the, the lukewarm water. The, the hot water would soothe the throat. The cold water would be refreshing to drink. But the lukewarm water is just nauseating. It's worth nothing. It, it makes you want to throw up. They're, they're not simply being called to be more on fire for God. They're... They're called to stop conforming to the culture and be a witness for Christ. They're called to transform the culture, bring healing and refreshing to it. They're called to bring the gospel to the culture and not to lay back and be indifferent to their obligations, to the one that they call their master. They're, they are to bring healing through the gospel and they are to bind up the hurting and refresh them with the love of Christ. They're doing neither. They're just there. And so... Next, in verse 17, Jesus is going to tell us exactly how they are being lukewarm. And, and, and the reason they're not fulfilling their role to testify of Christ to the culture. This is the reason why their witness is ineffective. It's good for nothing. This is the reason why they have laid back and melded with the culture. Verse 17 says, for, because, this is why, it says, because you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. As we said before, the, La the Laodiceans were rich. I mean, mega rich. Uh, we, we talked about that before, but, you know, I don't think that I can properly convey just how rich the city was. Trade moved through Laodicea over two different routes, one running north-south, one running east and west. Uh, you also, of course, you know, we already talked about the black wool that was sold there, the, the expensive stuff, the Phrygian powder, the medical concoctions that came out of there. Uh, there were textile industries. There were all kinds of things going on. Uh, the problem the Laodicean church was facing 
uh, here in this letter, there's no hint of persecution from the Romans. There's no hint of persecution uh, by the trade guilds or the pagan society for the worship of the gods or anything. There's no hint of persecution by the Jews. Uh, there was, there, in fact, there was a very rich Jewish population in the city as well. They sent, you know, the Laodicean Jews sent loads of money to Jerusalem uh, up until the city was destroyed in 70 AD. The problem in the church at Laodicea was that, I mean, basically they were just too blessed. They were so rich and well off that they didn't think they needed anything. They were, they were comfortable. Jesus says here in verse 17, you say, I'm rich and you've prospered and you don't need anything. He said, but you don't realize that you're actually poor and you're blind and you're naked. I think the reason the Laodicean letter is preached so much is because we can draw a direct parallel to from this church with the Christian church. I mean, modern Christian church, especially in America. Most of the people in the world, most of the people in the world live in third world countries. I mean, even today. Uh, I mean, if you've got a roof over your head, steady income, majority of people in the world will call you rich. I mean, even if you are, are poor by, you know, whatever standards. But when we think of being rich, you know, we usually think of mansions, millions of dollars, had, don't have to work for a living, bunch of cars and boats and, you know, all kind of things. But the reality is that it's easy to take the blessings of God and just lay back and get comfortable. Uh, that seemed to be the mindset of uh, of the people in Laodicea and it's the mindset of so many people today but you know if something happens something some tragedy some disaster some turn of events take place that that removes our security or our sense of comfort oh we'll be the first ones on our knees crying out to God to move and deliver us but when everything's going well we got enough food there's nothing really pressing to worry about everything's going fine we tend to forget God we tend to get lazy we tend to get comfortable. And you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to live in a mansion. You don't have to not have to work for a living in order to get comfortable with the blessings of God. Uh, these Laodiceans were saying, hey, I don't need anything. They were they were self-sufficient, you know, or, or so they thought. Uh, remember, the, these are the same people that refused Roman help in rebuilding the city after it was damaged in an earthquake in 60 AD. They were... They were falling into uh, the trap that Jesus warned about repeatedly in the gospel. They were trusting in their wealth for comfort and security. They were, you know, they probably wouldn't have said, you know, hey, I don't need, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to depend on him. But their lives, their testimonies, the whole character of the church exuded the fact that they were depending on themselves for their needs. Uh, because these believers were prideful. They were self-sufficient. They they probably had the idea that they deserved to be happy. They deserved to be comfortable. So the idea of refusing to participate in the city's pagan feasts and festivals, um, you know, the, these were the, this was the highbrow, this is what the highbrow society did. Um, that didn't appeal to them at all. They were, they were of the of the upper class. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be for, I can think of them saying, they shouldn't be forced to suffer persecution, be ostracized from society. I mean, they were rich. They'd earned their living. And, you know, to stand for Jesus against the, the emperor worship and the idol worship and the civil ceremonies of the city, the, the pagan idolatry sacrificing, you know, to the mingling with the high society, sacrificing at the feasts of Zeus and all those things. Um, to do all that, 
meant that you would be persecuted. It meant that you would be ostracized from the community. It meant that you would be rejected from the elites. Um, If you were to tell them that that's what Christ called them to do, basically, in their mind, you were telling them that they weren't allowed to enjoy any of their wealth. They weren't allowed to enjoy what the city had to offer. Uh, It wasn't that big a deal, right? I mean... If you were one of these Laodicean Christians, you probably thought a lot like modern Christians do today. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Uh, Just a little sacrifice once in a while to the emperor, maybe attend the city festival. I mean, it's really just part of living in society, living, you know, here. Everybody's doing it. Doesn't mean we really believe uh, the things. It doesn't really mean that we are denying Jesus or anything like that. We're just, you know, we got a life to live. We're we're just living our lives. This is what we do. I mean, this is this is the culture. You can't you can't hold us to some crazy standard, you know, and expect us just to uh, hold up in our house and not, you know, mingle with anyone or or be known. You know, they could have come up with all kind of excuses, all kind of things. Uh, they had the truth is they'd forgotten. That it is Christ and Christ alone who is the amen and the ruler of the creation. Uh, The church in Laodicea has forgotten that it was only by God's grace that they have been forgiven. And it is by God's grace that they're now the church at all. Uh, In reality, their their prideful spiritual condition proved that it, in Christ's eyes, they were not rich. They were not rich at all. Instead, they were wretched and poor. They were blind and naked. This is the opposite of the church in Smyrna, who by worldly standards was poor. But Christ said, you're rich. Here in Laodicea, the church had everything by worldly standards. The people had everything. But they were actually, in Christ's eyes, they were poor. They were destitute. They were wretched. And remember also that Laodicea was renowned for its black wool. You know, we talked about that, made into garments. It was renowned for its wealth, and it was renowned for its famous eye medicine, known as Phrygian powder. So here, Christ is nailing them on all three things. He says, look, you're not, you're poor, you're not rich. And even though you sell the most extravagant clothes in the in the Roman world, you're you're actually naked yourselves. And even though you produce this wonderful medicine for people's eyes, you're actually blind. You're, you're depending on things that cannot fulfill your needs. You're depending on worldly things that are going to be burnt up. You're depending on things that don't matter. And you're living your life for worldly things, even though Christ is the eternal one and he is going to hold you eternally accountable for your actions. And so the point that he's making is that your witness, you are... You're, you're denying your witness for Christ by living and not coming out and being separate from the world. Um, but even now, even here, as he's given them this stern rebuke, in the midst of in the midst of their laziness, their spiritual lukewarmness, you know, whatever you want to call it, in the midst of their rebellion from being a witness for Christ, there's still hope for them if they would just repent. If they would just turn back to him. And we've seen this before in the other letters. But here, uh, Christ phrases it uh, a a little bit differently. He says, verse 18. I'm going to read 18 and 19 together. It says, I counsel you. This is what Christ is counseling them. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. 
He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And he says, I'm counseling you to buy from me a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, look, these are the three things that Laodicea is famous for. They're famous for their wealth. They're famous for their glossy black wool that is so expensive and so chic. And they're they're famous for this this Phrygian powder that comes from the uh, the medical school. It was a uh, it started in I don't I don't know if I told you this or not, but the medical school started as a, a temple to a god called Menkaru. But this uh, this place which produced these mixtures of this medicine, this eye medicine that was so renowned, Jesus said, "Look, I'm I'm telling you, you need to buy gold from me." You don't need to have you don't need to trust in the gold that you have. You need to guy, buy gold from me that's refined the fire. You need you need to uh not trust in your your pretty black chic garments that you're selling. You need to buy you need to buy white garments from me so that your nakedness will be covered. You can't cover your own nakedness with your uh with your wealth with your garments that you're selling with your worldly wares and you need to buy from me the the salve that uh is to anoint your eyes so that you will see so that you won't be blind anymore and then verse 19 he says those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent that's the solution to their trouble be zealous and repent they're really poor, wretched, blind, and naked in Christ's eyes. So they need Christ. They need to remember that all their sufficiency, all their blessing comes from him. They need to remember that that he is the one, the only one on whom they can properly depend. Everything else is nothing but idolatry. So Jesus tells them, you're poor. You need to buy gold from me. You're, you're naked. You need white garments from me. You... you you know, you can't just wear those pretty things that you're making. You you Laodiceans need, you need to buy medicine from me to anoint your eyes. Uh, Jesus once again tells his church that their actions and their witness for him are unacceptable. But he also wants them to know that, that they're part of his body. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's easy for us to get bogged down in, you know, all the sin and the failures of this church, this church to Laodicea, and start start to look at them as just wicked, evil pagans. Um, it, it's been preached that way a lot, but Jesus still says here that he loves them, and if they would repent, he would turn back to them as they turn to him. He says because he loves them, he's chastening them. The ones who are his are the ones that he shepherds, the ones that he rebukes. Jesus still considers them his people. Now, of course, he's going to bring consequences on his people when they're disobedient, when they're spiritually lazy, but he does this out of the love for his children to bring them back to, to righteousness, not just to punish. It's not too late for them. They must repent of their pride and their laziness. They must be zealous. They must return to their witness for Christ. For for them, this would probably mean they must come out from among the cultural paganism and be separate. They must put on the mantle of Christ and face the culture for his name. This means they won't be able to be members of the high society, maybe. They won't be able to enjoy all the festivals of the pagans that uh, all the, the civil elites 
enjoyed. means they won't be accepted among the society anymore. They'll have to stand against everything that sets itself up against Christ. They will have to make a choice and return to the zeal for Christ's name that once characterized them. This is it's a message for the modern-day church. It's a, what the modern-day church needs to hear. You may, have, you, you may have to give up some things. You may have to sacrifice some of the comforts and the ease that you enjoy, but you are called to be a witness for Christ and to come out from the culture and be separate, to come out from... Uh, comfort to come out and and stop living for uh just the ease of life to the ease of comfort to be um to have your own thing and be healthy and happy to have to live for your free time you're called to be a witness for christ you're called to be a slave to him and then verse 20 boy a lot of a lot of sermons on this verse Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me now, I'm sure you've heard this verse preached before. In fact, you you probably quote it from memory. It is so well known. Uh, but most of the time it's used to preach to non-believers, saying that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, knocking, just hoping and pleading for you to open the door of your heart so you can be saved. Um, I guess in a sense that's true, but this reading of the text, kind of it kind of destroys what Jesus is saying to this church in Laodicea. Uh, first of all, Jesus is the amen, the rule of creation. He is king of kings, lord of lords. The The idea of helpless little Jesus waiting outside the door, you know, with his hat in his hand, just hoping that believers, uh, that non-believers uh, won't let him in is, I mean, that that's extremely distasteful to me. But more than that, it's it kind of denies the context of the passage. Remember, this letter is written to the church. Uh, this phrase was written to believers, to the church at Laodicea. It was written to Christians. Why would Jesus tell Christians that he is standing at the door and knocking, asking to be let in? It, it's because they've shut him out of his own church. They are the church at Laodicea, and they claim the name of Christ, but they don't live for Christ. They live for their own pleasure and their own comfort. They have forsaken the witness of Christ. They have uh, forsaken the mission uh, the great commission of Christ. They have they have basically turned their backs on everything that Christ has commanded them to do. So Christ is showing them a picture of saying, look, you guys have actually put me out of your church that you're calling by my name. They are revering the name of Christ, maybe with their words, but they've refused to be a witness. They refuse to be the witness that Christ called them to be, to, to share a meal with somebody. He says, if you let me in, I'll come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. To share a meal with someone in the ancient world was considered intimate fellowship with that person. That, that's why Jesus got in so much trouble in the Gospels from the Jewish leaders because he chose to eat with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea that, that he's still here, he's still Lord of the church, and if they would just repent of their deeds, if they would just repent and turn back to him, they'd be forgiven. He would come in and he would fellowship with them. He's not pleading with the unbelieving world here. He does. He, he commands all men everywhere to repent. He's pleading here with his own people to open the door of his own church back to him. I mean, it may sound strange to us, but we got to remember that even here, these are God's people. They're disobedient they're lazy they're rebellious but they are his people he will discipline them and if need be he will remove them we've seen that before he said to the other churches i'll come and i'll remove your lampstand 
But here at this point in time, he's saying there's an opportunity for them to repent. There's an opportunity for them to turn to him. A lot of people say things about wishing we could return to the first century church or that the church has gotten all messed up over the centuries. But in reality, just reading through the text of Scripture, the church was filled with fallible sinners from the very beginning. Paul calls the church at Corinth saints at the very beginning of his letter. And then he spends the whole letter talking about divisions among them and the sin that's among them and how they're misusing their gifts and doing all kind of different things, misusing the Lord's Supper, all kind of problems. The apostle Peter and Paul had a had a head-to-head disagreement about Jews and Gentiles, eating with Jews and Gentiles. And you see that in the book of Galatians, verse, chapter 2. Paul and Barnabas had a fight overtaking John Mark with them on a second missionary journey. Paul was mad because Mark left them. Uh, you, I mean, you could go on and on and on and on and on in the, in the early church, the early chapters of Acts. God killed a man and a woman because they were lying to him in the midst of his church. They were they were not who they said they were, and they didn't do what they said they had done. So the church really isn't any different today than it was back then. It has sinners in it. And it wasn't perfect back then, and it's not perfect now. I mean, we could go on and on about this. Now, listen, this is not to say that there's no such thing as a false convert. This is not to say that there weren't any uh, people who said they were believers and weren't really believers in the Laodicean church itself. But the church is still the church. It still has its people in it. It is the local assembly here in Laodicea that needs to open the door to the head of the church and begin to focus their lives and practices around him again. They do this by following the commands that Jesus gave, and that is to be zealous and repent, just as he's commanded. So this is not a picture of a believer standing on the sidewalk um, telling an unbelieving world, you know, God is just, Jesus is just standing at the door of your heart. I mean, you could do that. Jesus offers an invitation. He gives a command to repent. He gives a command to believe. Uh, I don't have any problem saying that, uh, in a sense, God is calling non-believers to himself. I don't have a problem with that at all. But here, if you simply take it this way in this verse, you are missing what God Christ is saying to his church. Uh, it's easy to push this verse off and say, well, this is this is really not for me. This is for all those non-believers out there. No, no, this is for you. He's saying, listen, church, you shut me out of my own church. You have... Uh, refuse to be the witness that I've called you to be. You've refused to be the servant that I've called you to be. You've chosen instead to live for the world. You've chose to live for your own comfort. You've chose to live for your own self. And you have, you have shut me out of the church. The church is no longer allowing Christ in. He says, you be zealous and you repent. You open the door. There's still time. If you repent, you open the door to me, and I will come in and have fellowship with you, but you must repent from all this. And so it, it's a powerful message to the church that often gets overlooked when we, we, we just point it toward unbelievers. So I'm not saying there's no application for unbelievers. Don't go run off and say, well, you know, whatever. I'm just saying if that's the only direction that you're facing, that you're pointing this verse, then you're missing what it's saying to you as a believer. Verse 21, it says, 
We're going to see this at the end of the letter, same as uh, all the other letters. It's going to have a promise of eternal life to the one who conquers. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So finally, last part of the letter, promise of eternal life. Uh, Remember that conquering and overcoming in the letters means that one is faithful to Christ. Uh, despite all the opposition and the pressures from the culture. We've seen that before in the other letters. Um, Jesus promises that the overcomer will be granted to sit on his throne. But he says that he was given the Father's throne because he also conquered. He also overcame. How did Christ conquer? How did he overcome? Of course, we know that he overcame by being faithful to the will of the Father, even to death. He, He gave his life on a cross took the persecution that came without wavering and gave his life. This is what he expects of his people. He says, the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit on my throne. He says, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Uh, The believers are to conquer by holding fast to his name, even if it means their death. They're to give their lives for the testimony of Christ, whether that means a life full of service or being martyred either way. If Christ calls them to sacrifice themselves for his name, they should certainly not give up the testimony of Christ for worldly comfort and pleasure. They should certainly not capitulate to the pressures of living at ease in the world if Christ calls them to give their very lives. And so the point here is that Christ has been glorified both as both God and man to the very throne of the Father. That It's hard for... Uh, it's hard for some people to uh, uh, to understand how how Christ could be given a throne. Is he not God? How Christ could uh, sit down and be exalted to the throne of his Father? Uh, if you don't understand the incarnation, it makes it very difficult. Um, a lot of people have gone off into a lot of aberrant theology uh, because uh, not understanding this point. Um, Jesus was is the eternal Son of God. He was he's God of very God before uh, creation. He's self-existent. He is there was always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what Jesus did, what the Son uh, of God did, the second member of the Trinity, what He did for us was He took on. Uh, human nature. He took on the form of a servant, and uh, he 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 came in the incarnation as fully God and fully man. And of course, he died on the cross, rose from the grave, and when he ascended into heaven, he ascended he ascended to the throne of the Father as both God and man. So. For the first time in the history of the universe, for the first time throughout eternity, a man came to the throne of God and was accepted, exalted, and given the throne of the Father himself. It was Jesus. It was the God and man. So he says, just as I have conquered and sat down on my Father's throne, the one who conquers, I will I will give him to sit on my throne. He says... He calls. I mean, he calls his people to reign with him, uh, but that's only possible uh, to those who, by God's grace, remain faithful uh, to his calling. It's those in this last letter. We don't see any heads getting chopped off. We don't see any Roman persecution, Jewish persecution. We don't see any persecution from the trade guilds. We don't see any persecution from the uh, pagan civil festivals or anything like that. What we see is complacency 
and a desire to live in the world and be of the world rather than be a testimony of Christ. And this, perhaps, is the greatest temptation that the church will ever face.